We are continuing our study on uh, the truths uh, about his, his life, the truth about God. Uh, we've uh, looked at the truth about uh, the Word, the Bible, and saw how God is using it, uses it still uh, to teach us, reveal to us uh, His Word, His way. We learned about truth about God the Father, truth about God the Son, truth about uh, God the Spirit, and then looked at the truth about uh, the Trinity. Last week, we looked at the truth about mankind and who we are as a man. Uh, and so we want to continue this with the truth about salvation. Um, my design originally was to do this one Sunday, uh, but I could see very clearly uh, with the text I chose, we will not do this in one Sunday. Uh, Lord willing, it will be two Sundays. Uh, of looking at this truth about salvation. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, this is of course the chapter where John 3.16 is found and uh, often quoted and put out in various stadiums and around. Um, And so we're going to look at the story that's behind that passage of John 3.16. I watched uh, two movies this past week, um, an interesting uh, as I think about the parallel, uh, one of them was The Martian. Some of you have seen The Martian, uh, perhaps, and it's, uh, I think, nominated for some awards. Um, and so, you know, the simple story about uh, mankind able to get to uh, Mars, uh, send out a study group there, and uh, one man gets left behind uh, unintentionally, uh, and he kind of is knocked out, comes to, realizes what has happened, and is dealing with the consequences of the fact that he's going to live on his own uh, and figure out how to survive on a planet uh, where there is no human uh, and no resources other than what he brought. Uh, And so the other uh, is the story of Jesus, uh, watched uh, yesterday, of the resurrection, uh, risen. And just interesting, uh, two dilemmas Two solutions uh, that was brought in each one of these movies. Uh, in the Martian movie, it was written by, or uh, produced by, um, I believe Ridley Scott. I can't remember Ridley or Tony. Uh, one of them died, uh, so <laughs> it matters which one it was. Uh, so the, you know, the brothers have a scot-free company, which you know, I always kind of note, and I like their movies. Uh, but the, uh, the story is that's behind uh, Martian is, is that the surviving brother had always been the one that was kind of the, the answer man, the director for his brother. And this movie is somewhat reflective of how he dealt with and coped with the death of his brother uh, when his brother kills himself. Um, and just it gives this picture of man just kind of girding himself up dealing with it one problem at a time, one solution at a time, and goes through uh, improbable odds, and yet he survives. And that's the story of mankind as told by one of the Scott brothers. Uh, And so you can't get past the idea, though, that though he's girding himself up and trying to make things happen, he needs help. Because there's no way you're going to get to Earth from Mars on your own. And he needs help, and help comes through the form of NASA and science and all of mankind coming together to rescue this one. Uh, and at the end, uh, 
the survivor, the actor Matt Damon is saying is simply that, you know, when you have problems, you kind of just deal with it and solve one math problem at a time. You just keep on doing that. So there's this picture of life that, that echoes within um, America of, yeah, one math problem at a time. Unless you're terrible at math, <laughs> then you've got a problem. Uh, but you know, how do I just face it and deal with it? Uh, and that is found within us. And then there's the story of the resurrection. And just a totally different picture altogether. Uh, and so with that idea of how do we solve the dilemmas that we have, uh, we go to John uh, chapter 3. And I think to get, get at this, uh, we're going to read just three verses of chapter 2. Uh, but last week we've seen how man's sin is total. And it's fatal. It impacts all of who we are. And our solution to it is futile and our soul is in trouble and so this idea of just tackling at one problem at a time hits a major brick wall and in fact that the span between us and god is greater than mars and earth that we cannot bridge this divide and so uh with this thought let's read uh john uh and i'm going to ask that we read with john chapter 2 verse 23 and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 18. And in respect of this being God's word and its place among us, let's stand as we read this together. If you'll read silently, I'll read aloud. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the things, the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The winds blow where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not where it comes, do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know, understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You may be seated. So I want to get to the first part of this passage. This is a fascinating encounter with Nicodemus. And it's helpful for us to understand the context. What has just been said. What Jesus knows. And so Jesus is, has been in the temple. Cleansed the temple. This is the Passover feast. Huge crowds of people coming to celebrate the Passover. These are religious people. They know the word of God. They celebrate the word of God. They're here for this purpose. And many believed in his name when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. But notice what Jesus' response was to them. On his part, he did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. He himself knew what was in man. What a startling omission. Jesus says, I'm around the religious people. But I'm not entrusting myself to them because I know stuff about them. Yeah, they believe. They believe who I am because of my miracles. But there's something where Jesus stops short of claiming them as his own. I wonder what it could be. I think we see Nicodemus right after that. And it tells us a little bit of a picture. Why isn't Jesus entrusting himself to them? And we learn quickly that Nicodemus sees Jesus not as a savior. He sees him as a teacher. Notice what he calls him? Teacher. We know you've come from God. And Jesus just interrupts him there. They see Jesus as a good man, as a teacher, a prophet, But they do not yet see him as a savior. They do not, importantly, trust him. Surrender to him. Jesus is not entrusting himself to them because they are not entrusting themselves to him. So I just want to bring out something to you that, uh, you know, a lot of us sometimes say, well, we believe in Jesus. We believe that God exists. We believe that Jesus is a, uh, a teacher. Maybe we believe that he is Messiah. Maybe we'll say that we believe that he is a Savior, but we don't trust him as that. We do not, importantly, surrender to him. To say that you trust in Jesus means that you surrender. As you have surrendered your weight to your chair, your pew, so you surrender yourself to Jesus, and Jesus does not entrust himself to these. Because they do not entrust themselves to him. How do you entrust yourself to Jesus? There is surrender. See, here's something I want you to understand. James chapter 2 makes a a very startling statement. In verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. You see, A believing faith without a surrendering faith is the same thing as a demonic faith. A believing faith without a surrendering faith is no different from a demonic faith, and a demonic faith will get you a demonic fate. So, Jesus sees the religious crowd. 
But he says, I'm not entrusting myself to them. All right, help us out, Jesus. So John records this story of Nicodemus coming to him in chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, all right, named Nicodemus. What, what do we know about this? Well, if he is a Pharisee, and then described as a ruler of the Jews, he is a religious person, very much religious. He is a moral, uh, stable, morally structured person, okay? He knows what is good, he knows what is bad, and he tries the best as possible to adhere to what is good. We know that he is an educated man, uh, to be of this ruling class, uh, and he was probably an older man. Uh, he was a powerful man. He was a wealthy man uh, at this this time of his life. Uh, and so, a lot of times, I, you do, the point of this is you must be born again. And so, I, what do you think of when you hear the word born again? I, I think the problem is that America thinks one thing, and Jesus is teaching something else. When when we say that you're born again. Uh, what comes to your mind? A lot of times when we think of being born again, we think of someone who is morally structured. Uh, we'll say, we'll describe a, a young man and say, well, you know, he doesn't drink, uh, he, you know, he, he doesn't sleep around, um, you know, he, he, he's, he's this type of, he, he's a born again guy. And we all kind of go, oh, we know what that means. Um, interesting to find out, there's one study that says that some of the measles, Least like neighbors are born again neighbors. Um, if you ever watched The Simpsons, it's been on long enough so that I was actually a young guy, a, a little middle schooler when that came on. And I remember how they portrayed the Christian neighbor. You know, he, he's the moron. Um, and so he's the born again guy. And so we, we often think of this morally structured, he's got it together, knows the right and wrong. Or we think of someone who's kind of going through some major emotional breakdown in his life. And so because of this crisis, he's been born again. But I look at Nicodemus. First of all, he is a morally structured guy. He knows right and wrong. He's an educated man. He's a wealthy man. He's not the emotional crisis person. And yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. So first I want you to understand uh, the necessity of new birth. The necessity of new birth. Notice how Jesus says this right from the get-go. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Basically what he's saying to him, you must be born again. Yes, you're religious. It's not enough. Yes, you're good. It's not enough. You know the scriptures. You're a teacher in the scriptures. It's not enough. There must be something other than what you are experiencing. And notice that, uh, how Jesus is addressing this man. Uh, is, you see that first, uh, especially when you compare John 3 with John 4. John 4 is the Samaritan woman story. You know that story? Just If you don't read that... <laughs> Uh, you'll see how Jesus differs with this woman and how he deals with this man. Jesus is constantly interrupting Nicodemus. Uh, it says that he comes at night. A man came to Jesus by night, and evidently it may be windy. Jesus makes allusions to a windy night, or uh, being uh, windy at the time. And so it's nighttime. He doesn't want others to see him. We could guess some of the motivations. A lot of times we say, well, he's a seeking person. Maybe, but look at what he says. 
Rabbi, we know. Who's the we? Evidently, the Pharisaical group are a group within that group. He's representing somebody. He said, I'm going to represent this group. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, no rabbi, no Pharisee is going to say that in public. They say that in private. You know what it has the, the dealings with, or the, the smacks of? of? Of a little bit of a, a backdoor, closed political meeting. Well, let's get together, Jesus. I, we're not going to do this out in public. But, you know, let, let's save face, and let's see if we can compromise. We want to work with you a little bit on some things here, Jesus. So we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, does that sound like a complete thought? There's not yet a question. There's not yet an appeal. He's just stating some facts, and Jesus starts talking. So the first time he talks, Nicodemus says about 30 words. The second time, Nicodemus says about 20 words. The last time, four words. And Jesus is constantly, he's like, no, no. He's interrupting him at every turn. And he's turning the table. Nicodemus, it's time you listen to me. Compare that to how he deals with the Samaritan woman in John 4. He's constantly asking the Samaritan woman questions. He's trying to get her to talk. And he's trying to get Nicodemus to be quiet. <laughs> you listen to me. Just, I want you to observe that and how he's dealing because he knows what's in the hearts of men. And so before he's going to pretend like we're walking together on the same page in any form or any fashion, Nicodemus, you need to, you need to understand some things. If you're going to pretend like you're walking on the same page as me, you want to play ball with me, then, hey, let me first start with where you're saying, teacher, teacher. And notice, what's the response? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Does that seem related? Teacher, you, we know you came from God. And then he says, wait a sec, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Jesus is answering the heart, not the question or not what is being brought up. He said, let me get to the heart. Look, you're talking about these things. If you want to approach me as a teacher, that's not going to happen. We're not going to continue this conversation with you thinking I'm just a teacher from heaven. You see, there are some things, Nicodemus, you're not seeing, and you won't be able to see until you're born again. Now, what protest might Nicodemus have there? Well, wait a second. First of all, what does that mean, being born again? And second, why do you think I need to be born again? You see, the ones that have the hardest time with this are the ones who feel like they're most morally progressed. You see... Because the Christian faith, as you look throughout history, it's always the outsiders that, it, that have this appeal. Because the gospel says we're all on the same grounds. And that is we're morally bankrupt. So, it's kind of like, it doesn't matter if you shop at Saks Fifth Avenue. Or if you go to Walmart off New Bern. I don't like going to Walmart on New Bern because last time I was there, I saw a drug deal happen right in front of me and my boys. I'm just saying, ah. <laughs> there are some morally questionable activities that happen in the parking lot, all right, uh, in New, off New Bern. 
And so I, I just present that because that usually he says, well, I don't do that. I go Target, you know. That's like, the <laughs> I'm better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm a little bit. So let's just not even go Target. Let's go Saks Fifth Avenue, all right? It doesn't really matter if you shop at Saks or if you shop at Newburn uh, there at Walmart. The gospel is saying to the person who thinks they're elite and the person who thinks they're elite in a different way, you're both messed up. And it doesn't matter if you're in the power rooms, boardrooms, and your businesses are in government, or if you're out in the streets just trying to survive, both of you start in the same spot. So guess who doesn't like that? Well, the sex Fifth Avenue shoppers don't like that. Jesus is saying to the Nicodemuses, just like he's saying to the morally loose woman in the next chapter, you both need a savior. The necessity of a new birth. Well, first of all, it implies that our old birth isn't working for us. Uh, we looked at this last week when we talked about who mankind was. And Jeremiah 17 verse 9 talks about that the heart of man is, is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. There is within our lips murder and our hearts expressed by our lips. When we were exasperated, we're frustrated with others. I'm done with them. Murder. Murder. There is lying that constantly comes from our hearts that we want to see people uh, view us as better than ourselves. If it's not the flat-out verbal a lie, it's the lie of omission. Well, we'll pretend like we're agreeing with someone in everything that they say. Uh, we'll just go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we don't want to be viewed as something less, and we want them to like us. And so there's this constant uh, lie that we're trying to propose and uh, get out of our hearts to the lust that are in our life, in our heart. And so it, this is the, yes, we need something new and so a lot of times the answer we think is you know maybe i need to reform myself maybe i need an instruction on how to live the new life teacher will you teach me how to live the new life and the teacher is saying first of all i'm not a teacher i'm a savior and i can't teach you how to live a new life i can give you a new life i cannot teach you how to live a new life we won't desperately the youtube video on how to live a new life how to change and make the new you in 30 days and so this constant refrain of how can i make my life better jesus is saying it's not a how you can make it it's that god gives you a new life the necessity of a new birth you got to see it not as the teacher but see him as the savior Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When God gives you a new life, a new heart, you see things differently. Things catches your eye. I had one of my sons come into the car, and the first thing he made comment was, was the packet of gum I had in a cup holder. How is it? That's the first thing he saw. Because that's where his eyes are going to. He has a heart for gum or candy or any other sugar delight. So when it says 
You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you have a new birth. God changes your heart so you see things differently. It's not just he introduces new things. He changes all of how you see. It's, it's the difference between sunlight. It's not that I just see the sunlight. It's the sunlight changes by which I see everything. The gospel of God is not just something I see new in my life. It changes my paradigm of how I view everything else. The necessity of the new birth and changes so that we can see the kingdom of God. Keep on reading. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. At verse 5, he's introducing to the spiritual source of the new birth. And so now we've seen the necessity of the new birth, now the spiritual source of the new new birth. When he says this in verse 6, he's actually quoting from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27. If you want to, you can turn there for just a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 36. 25 through 27. In this prophecy, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It goes on talking about it. In chapter 37, he gives this illustration where he has the prophet go into this valley of dry bones, and the question is, can these bones live? And the prophet says, God, only you know. And there you have this amazing encounter where God brings these bones and breathes, puts flesh and, and meat and breathes life into them as a picture to show to the prophet that God makes us new. It is done through a spiritual source of the Holy Spirit. One of the uh, more poignant scenes of the movie Martian was where uh, the, the, the stranded astronaut is trying to survive and, and, and works out a system whereby he can grow his plants. And the very first time you see in this dry, ruddish-looking soil, something green, something sprig comes out. And you think, wow, life on Mars. It shows a scene on Earth later on where the astronaut now sitting on a park bench notices on the gravel a little sprig of life that seems so commonplace here on Earth. And Scott, one of the Scott brothers was noting that scene or the power of it. You see, here's the thing. Our heart is as Mars when it comes to spiritual life. There is no capacity within us, no environment within us, whereby the Spirit of God, of love, of kindness, of joy, naturally motivates the drive of our heart. The Spirit of God comes and changes us on the inside, giving us a new way of looking at things, new thirst, new hunger. I mean, how how many of you ever have seen, outside of the New Testament, a how-to manual, an aspiration of how to be tender-hearted? I mean, do you see that on, on men's health anywhere? Is that on Vanity Fair? Ten ways to be tenderhearted. No one talks about that. There's no aspiration. But yet it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's given to us in, in Scripture of what it is to be Christ-like. Part of that is to be tenderhearted. It gives us a new 
thirst, a spiritual source of, of God working in our life. You see, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, talks about this seed. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. To be born of the Spirit is a spiritual source. But then I want to talk to you about the mysterious nature of this new birth. There is the necessity of this new birth. There is the spiritual source of this new birth that is done by a Spirit of God working in us in our life. But there's a mysterious aspect of this, of this new birth because it says very clearly, you must be born again. And some, it's something that happens to us. Verse 7, you must be born again. So how many of you just put on your to-do list, okay, let's be born today? Just, babies don't do it to themselves. It happens to them. There's some mother that bears the pain of nine months of the burden of the baby and the effects on the body of the baby, the, the pain of the birth. Ultimately, the blood of the mother is shed for the life of someone else. And that baby lives unknowingly crying, breathing air because of a mother laying out and blood coming out of her. The suffering of the mother. And amazingly, all the anguish is forgotten. And all the mother cares about then is the baby's life on her chest. And they forget. I know they forget because they do it again. And again. And again. And again. I know that because I witnessed it four times. And nowhere did my wife say, no, 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 we're not going there again. You know? There's this forgetfulness. Because of the joy of the baby, of the life. But every single one of our children are here because the mother suffered on their behalf for them even to take their first breath. You see, it, it's, it's passive. What does that mean for us? That means I can't just muster up, God, I, I want to be born. I, I, let's, let's make this happen. God does it to us. But at the same time, in John chapter 4, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. So which one is it? God does it to us or a woman that says, I want that water? It's both. Thus, the mysterious nature of this new birth. You see, there is radical depravity in our life whereby we can't be born ourselves we can't make it happen we don't have the capacity within us even our, our prayers of repentance often are laced with pride as john owens talked about there must be a overcoming grace working in our life overcoming who we are from god's working in our life to bring and produce eternal life in us And so, yes, somehow it involves God's working with us and at the same time man's response to that work. Where does God's work starts and stops and man's response starts and stops? I do not know. I do know somehow they're both involved. 
And there is a mysterious nature in that a child is born. A human is spiritually born because God chose it to happen. So what can be encouraged by that? Well, here's the encouragement of that. Sometimes you see yourself or you see someone else and you think, there's no way they can ever change. Have you ever seen that in yourself? There is such a habit within you, a tendency to lie to others, to exaggerate, whatever it might be. And you say, man, what hope do I have? I've had people come to me and say, you know what, this sounds great, but I don't know if change can really happen in my life. Here's the good news. The change that really happens in your life doesn't rest on you. And if change really happens in your life, it's because someone else did it that's greater than you. Not because of you. That's the encouragement of this. So that when I'm struggling with my own sin, my own life, to say, God, help me. I need something other than myself to change who I am. I need new life. And I plead for God's work. But do you know even that desire for that? Even my thirst for new life is a product of God. Some of you are thinking, you know what, it sounds wonderful to be able to have a thirst for the Word of God. I, you know, honestly, I don't always do that. I, it sounds wonderful to be able to pray about things and see God work. But I, I just don't do that. But do you have a hunger for that? Do you have a desire to have the Word of God in your life? Do you have a desire to know the Word of God? Do you have a desire to, to have a desire? <laughs> I would just propose to you that the desire to even have a desire is the work of God in your heart and life. Because you know what my desires are? What's comfortable for me? That's how I know when I'm working and operating. Whatever comes as comfort for me, that's me. But when there's a hunger, when there's a thirst for something other than that, that's already the work of God bringing up, if, if nothing else, it may seem just as a sprig of a, a green in my life. But it can be nurtured. It can be fertilized through the word of God and through the lives of others in faith of this growing you see you can you can want apple trees but you got peach trees and it doesn't really matter how many times you fertilize that peach tree or how much you water that peach tree you can take care of that peach tree but it's never going to produce an apple tree it's not by reforming yourself it's by a change of nature altogether and so that's why Jesus is saying, you know what? It's not by me teaching you anything as a rabbi that comes from God. You've you got to think differently about me. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm a savior. And God's not interested in reforming you. He's inter interested in rebirthing you. Because anything coming from your flesh is not going to produce spiritual results. There has to be a new nature within you. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not yet receive our testimony. Jesus goes on and Verse 14 gives them a little nugget of Numbers 21, a little story that may seem obscure. So I want you to think about the story. We don't ever see in this passage 
where Nicodemus says, God, I'm a sinner, forgive me. He never, in this story, says, I'm going to follow you. But interesting, as we read the Gospels, what happens with Nicodemus? In chapter 7, verse 51, Nicodemus is in the Sanhedrin, and they're kind of figuring out, what are we going to do with this guy? Interesting what Nicodemus has to say. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You know what that tells us about Nicodemus? He's still listening. He's still listening to Jesus. And he's encouraging the others to do the same. And then we see him again in chapter 19. Jesus' death. Burial. Joseph of Arimathea has come and wants to take care of the body. But in this same bit, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who early had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound him in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus starts with some questions. He's challenged. He keeps on listening. By the end, he's anointing Jesus. He's anointing Jesus. I remember I had a couple come forward here one time. Right after I, I preached, he came up and we sat down right here and he had just tears in his eyes. And his wife had had this emotional experience of coming to know Jesus as a Savior and Lord. And he was a, an atheist at that point. Uh, but at the time he was sitting here, he was miserable, he was uncomfortable. And he said, it seems like everything you were saying was right to my heart. I don't know what to do with this. I'm scared. Because if there's a God, he might ask me to do something and I might end up crazy. And he said, but you know what, I, I, I don't have experiences like my wife. She had this emotional experience and she can't explain it. That hasn't happened to me yet, so I'm not, I'm not going to follow. I said, man, you need to understand something. You're not your wife. You don't respond like she does. You don't think like she does. Jesus is talking to you. He's calling you out in a way that you know, in a way that you can understand. If you had some emotional experience like that, you would just dismiss it. But instead, he's calling you through your mind. Hear him. Listen to him. You see, he's working with a Nicodemus different than he does a Samaritan woman at the well. And with Nicodemus, it starts with a little story about a serpent in the wilderness. We'll look at next week. And it starts ruminating his heart and his mind, where he wants to keep listening. And by the end of it, he's anointing the body of Jesus. The Bible doesn't go on to tell us what happens. But I have to think that if he is continuing to seek him, he would be found by a resurrected Jesus. Before we ever get to for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if anyone believes in him, he will never perish but have everlasting life. You've got to understand, there's got to be a birth that happens in your life. It's not enough by coming to church. It's not enough being by being baptized. It's just something that God does in your heart and life. 
changes your perception. So you hunger for Jesus. You hunger for a relationship. You hunger for what God has given to us in his word. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. It starts right there. It's not how to be good, how to be a good Baptist, how to be a good church member. It's God giving us his Holy Spirit. That's it. And our response is, you know what, God? I don't know if that's happened. I would just simply ask you to say, God, I want to be born of your spirit. And the pathway to that is understand your moral bankruptcy. Don't remain proud in who you are. Nicodemus had to get to that point. Jesus doesn't do the sinner's prayer with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is still proud. Some of you realize that maybe you're counting on your goodness, you're counting on your behavior, you're counting on your church membership, you're counting on religion. God is counting on you being born again. A new spirit within your heart. Would you pray with me? I pray that all of us would know this new birth that God can do in our life. Let's plead together for one another. Not just yourself, but for one another. That God, would you give them a new spirit? Will they have a hunger? Will they have eyes to see their need for a Savior? Would you bow with me in prayer?